Welcome to Infrastructure for a Better Future, a series where we have honest conversations about the infrastructure challenges we are facing and how we can build a better Aotearoa. In each episode, we talk to experts from here and overseas about what works when it comes to addressing these issues. So Brad, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, um, um, I work for Wellington City Council. Uh, official title is Manager of Transport and Infrastructure, um, electrical engineer by profession. Um, and I, um, my team basically looks after the transport network, um, maintenance operations from street cleaning and sweeping and emptying bins to um, looking after traffic signals and everything else in between. And um, we're also responsible for the capital delivery of new transport assets. So whether it be a new retaining wall, seawall, a cycleway, um, we build the new stuff. I was describing it to my colleague and I said that my understanding of it was sort of you have technical engineer type people below you who are sort of technical experts in their area. And then above you, you have like strategy people thinking about the big vision and you're kind of like the person stuck between those levels. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, it is It is kind of accurate. I mean, um, the role is quite diverse. It's probably the most diverse role that I've ever had. Um, it can be extremely reactive um, to operational, to tactical, to strategic, and you have to be able to just swing between those, you know, five, six times a day, you're, you're changing hats and thinking differently, operating differently. Very interesting. So the reason we got you in here today is that we recently published a paper that is about infrastructure and uncertainty and about what infrastructure should providers should do to plan and operate their infrastructure in an uncertain world. So very frequently we kind of think about the world as quite certain. We say like what's the medium growth forecast for example and then we say okay well we'll just like plan the infrastructure for that and we'll just like deliver it over the next 10 years or whatever. But actually, what tends to happen out there in the world is that it's quite uncertain. And if you just plan for that kind of central case, often that doesn't happen. And if you haven't quite anticipated that other futures might arise, you might get hung out to dry. Um, so we thought that you would be a good person to talk to about how that actually plays out in practice. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sources of uncertainty that you're seeing that play out on the Wellington Transport Network that play into what you have to think about in terms of what you'll have to be doing in the next year or three, ten years? Wow. Um, so th there's, there's obviously the uncertainty that everyone is um, probably well aware of. So, and, and some of that uncertainty is, you know, there's certainty associated with it. So when you think about stuff like climate change, um, whilst there's the uncertain as to how rapid the onset will be and how quickly things will move, we're, we're all pretty certain we're in the middle of climate change. We're starting to see that happen. We're starting to experience it. Um, and, uh, and whilst there's certainty that it's happening, uh, the uncertainty is, you know, at what rate, how, how bad is it going to get? What's, what's this year's storm season going to look like? What's this year's slip season going to look like? Um, and those are the things that are kind of uncertain. COVID taught us a lot about uncertainty as well, right? Um, the uncertainty of what's the market going to do? Um, 
material shortages, labor shortages, that sort of stuff. Um, it it, it kind of all brought into perspective the fact that if your planning is too rigid, you kind of end up stuck. And so building flexibility into your planning is key in, in facing an uncertain future, um, particularly where you can identify the uncertainties. So, so if you can identify, look, there's an uncertainty around um, what the labor market's going to look like in Wellington going forward, um, you can start to plan around that because that's where your uncertainty is and you can start to build flexibility into your planning as to how you manage that going forward. Um, I think um, one of the things that uh, I've, I've seen is particularly where we start to forecast infrastructure build and kind of we want certainty around that. So, so um, most funders, most regulators, they want some sort of certainty around if you plan on building infrastructure, when's it going to be built by, what's the cost going to be of that infrastructure, and, and there needs to be some sort of certainty associated with that. Um, when you've got variables that are uncertain around cost fluctuations, around uh, like labor and material shortages, that sort of thing, uh, you need to be able to be flexible in those parts to still guarantee some of that certainty of still being able to guarantee the cost, still being able to guarantee the delivery date. Um, and that's kind of been the, the complexity that we've been navigating over the last little bit um, in terms of trying to manage the network whilst still being able to, to build stuff. Very interesting. Sounds like a lot of different moving parts at the same time. So can you talk about perhaps some examples of how you're seeing uncertainty play out in the real world in your business and also what approaches you're using to build robustness to uncertainty in those, in those projects? Um, yeah, uh, I could probably talk to, so, so, so one, one, of the, one of the bits of uncertainty has always been, for me, has always been labor um, and has always been having a skilled workforce to be able to maintain the existing assets and renew the existing assets and keep that BAU maintenance and renewals ticking along, but also have enough labor to be able to, to build new infrastructure. Um, I think the way we're, we're starting to influence that and, and the way we're planning around that is identifying what the market looks like and, and planning around what the existing market looks like. Um, I'll give you an example of, of one of the things that we've been doing and we're about to land in the next few weeks. Um, so within the Wellington uh, transport labor market, there are uh, just a limited number of role players and we can probably count them with less than the fingers on one hand in terms of who, who actually does uh, transport related construction work in Wellington. One of the things that I noticed though was um, and if, if you tie yourself to that labor market, then you're kind of tied to the market in terms of what you can do and how you can deliver. One of the things that we noticed was there were a lot of local suppliers that weren't engaging with government and weren't engaging directly with local government. Um, and you'll see these suppliers doing stuff like uh, private property driveways, working for developers, uh, working for commercial industry, but they're not engaging directly with local government. And so we started to approach these suppliers and bring them on board. The, the thinking behind that is encouraging local suppliers to engage directly with local government um, and thereby guaranteeing them a stream of work in order for them to be able to progress their companies and their businesses forward. Um, so they've got 
a guaranteed line of work, they've got guaranteed income, they can start to invest into their, into their business. Um, and the other good news story is, you know, local money going back into local pockets. Um, and so, so we've started to do this. We've got a supplier panel that we're signing up in the next few weeks. Supplier panel will have 10 suppliers on it. Um, two or three of them are the big players that everyone kind of knows about, but seven of them are really small niche companies um, that are local Wellington-based companies um, that we're looking to go and develop. Um, and that's one of the ways uh, we're trying to create that flexibility of being able to have more players than are, are currently available in order to guarantee us some certainty in an uncertain uh, labor market. Um, when, when you're looking at the uncertainties around uh, stuff like climate change, I suppose some of the things that, that we're, we're, we're starting to consider is what does that mean for us when we don't quite understand what the impact of climate change is going to be um, on the city? So two aspects to that is uh, around um, increased rainfall. We know that there's going to be increased rainfall. And last year, July and August, we saw um, you know, the most uh, landslips um, in our recorded history uh, from a Wellington City perspective. Um, and it was really impactful. I think we had something like over a thousand slips over two months, uh, which is equivalent to what we'd get over a year, probably. So in two months, it was really busy. Um, and we're not sure what that's going to look like this year, next year, the years coming. Um, but all you can do is try kind of plan around the certainty aspects. So whilst we know that Wellington has a huge number of unsupported slopes and all those unsupported slopes are at some sort of risk in some manner or, or not, um, the certainty that we can work on is where the emergency uh, routes are. So whilst we can't plan to go and retain every single unsupported slope in the city, we can prioritize and we can say, well, these are key routes for us. Uh, to be able to, in an emergency, get emergency services moving, uh, get um, uh, emergency supplies into the city, out of the city uh, in a major event, so we can start to shore up those routes and retain those routes. Um, from, a, from a sea level perspective, whilst we're uncertain as to when sea levels will rise to the point that we're going to need to do something with our sea walls, uh, what we can do is we can, when we renew sea walls, strengthen them. So one of the things we do at the moment is when, when we renew a, a seawall, we strengthen it to the point that it can be raised by a meter at any point in the future. Um, so whilst the seawall will, will usually be the same height that it started off at, it's strong enough that at, at a point in the future, if we need to raise it by a meter, we can. Um, so that's kind of trying to create some sort of certainty where, where you're not quite sure what's going to happen and how how it's going to happen. I'm not sure if that's... Uh... That's a really good example of what we were talking about in the paper, which is real options analysis, which is basically making choices today that leave several options open in the future. So I think the seawalls example is a really good one of, you know, it's leaving a different option available in the future to build on the current seawall rather than having to tear it down and, and start again. But Wellington is definitely in a different situation than a lot of places in New Zealand with the amount of walls and uh, difficult topography. And I guess, how does that play in with the thing that you were talking about in terms of the construction market? Because presumably when a slip happens, you don't really have any advance warning about that. That just happens. Eh? 
and you just have to react. So, so that's kind of the, the genesis of the, the supplier panel that we've created, is because historically for the last few years, what we've been doing is we've been using the crews that uh, deliver our maintenance and renewals program uh, to deliver new infrastructure as well. Um, the risk associated with that is when you do have a major event, all those crews disappear to go clear up slips, to go you know, uh, unflood streets that are flooding and, and clean sumps and, and that sort of thing. Um, so what you end up doing is prioritizing the major event ahead of infrastructure build. And so creating two separate portions where you've got uh, a, a group of companies that are dedicated to new build and you've still got the labor secured for, uh, for reactive uh, was kind of the reason that we, we set that up is, is to allow us to still be able to continue building infrastructure even when some unforeseen situation has happened because we've got reactive crews to deal with, uh, with that sort of thing. It's, it's always been a bit of a challenge for us over the last few years that I've been around uh, in terms of being able to prioritize your resources into the right space. And generally, when you're going through a major event, that's the thing that ends up getting prioritized over anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's this human tendency of thinking about these unexpected events as being like, oh, how could we have possibly seen this coming? And while you may not know like exactly what day is going to happen or how bad this year will be compared to next year, it is somewhat foreseeable, I would imagine, that extreme weather events will happen and you will have to clean up after them, eh? A hundred percent. And I think one, one of the things that, um, that we've started to do over the last, uh, I want to say, year and a half, maybe two years, is start to build that flexibility in terms of relationships as well. Uh, so uh, the other councils in the region, we, we often talk to each other. So I talk to my counterparts all the time. And when one uh, area is going, getting hit a bit harder than the rest of us, we kind of surround that person and say, hey, what do you need? Do you need some help? Do you need us to alleviate some of our crews, some of our engineers? Um, but having that sort of flexibility and not being siloed into thinking, this is my thing and I need to worry about this, um, also helps in, in that uncertainty. Because whenever a major storm comes through, you're not quite sure which one of the councils is going to get hit the hardest. But just having those relationships and being able to lean on them has, has been quite beneficial. And um, I mean, it, it goes it goes beyond councils as well, right? It goes uh, through stakeholders and and that sort of thing as well. So so w when you, when you're talking something like from a council perspective, streetlights and and dealing with streetlights, well, we've got an electricity provider, went and electricity locally as well that could also assist with some of the some of the issues that we're going through. And um, and we've been leaning on some of those relationships to to actually be able to to work together. And, um, and I find that that helps a lot when, when you're facing that uncertainty and you're not sure what's going to happen, is knowing that there's a relationship that you can lean on, uh, whether it's a stakeholder or another council. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of when I joined Te Wahanga, the Infrastructure Commission, I heard a lot of people in central government talking about um, Forward Works viewer, but that kind of work is definitely being seen by central government as a way of, like, collaborating across different types of infrastructure providers that would have a lot of value at, at the countrywide level. So it's quite interesting. Ford Worksview has, has been, has been uh, really good for us. So, so over the last year, I mean, Wellington, Wellington's, uh, you would have heard that whole city of transition, city in transition, city of transformation, all that uh, sort of stuff. Um, and 
when, when you go outside and you just need to walk around the central city, the amount of scaffolding and road cones that you see is just unbelievable. It's the most that I've, I've ever seen in the city. And, and it's not just council building infrastructure. You've got utility companies upgrading their infrastructure, whether it be Wellington Water, Wellington Electricity with their, their cable network. You've got developers, you've got uh, property owners, commercial properties undergoing development. Um, so there's a lot of work happening in the city. And being able to bring everybody around the table once a month and talk about what works going, geospatially laying it out, and trying to make sure that everyone can get access to the part of the city that they need access to when they need access to it to be able to build their infrastructure or do whatever they need to do has been just a game changer for us. Um, and so it's, it's starting to really come into its own in terms of us being able to coordinate stuff across the city and not just do a first come, first serve. Cool. Thanks for talking a bit about that. So going back to our paper, um, the approach that we used was I had a reference group across central government, which included both sort of system leaders like the uh, MFE, as well as infrastructure providers like Waka Kotahi and the Ministry of Education. And I was quite surprised talking to them that while a lot of them want to use approaches to build robustness to uncertainty, the central government infrastructure providers, they saw a lot of barriers to doing so that fit in kind of quite a lot of categories. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the barriers that you see, if any, to building robustness to uncertainty and what we might be able to do about them. I think for me, the biggest one comes in the form of risk. And I think that if you want to build uncertainty into your planning, you have to take risk. And, and that's where the difficulty comes because you're not sure how much risk you're actually taking or, or what sort of risk you're taking. I'll give you an example. Kiwi Point Quarry is um, in Nauranga Gorge and is one of the strategic assets for the council that I, um, that I manage. A few years ago, we identified that the Northern Pit and Kiwi Point Quarry uh, was reaching end of life and we would need to do something with the site. Um, we hedged our bets and we said we will quarry the southern end of the quarry. At the time we weren't certain as to what the quality of the rock was there um, or if, the if there was sufficient rock to make it a viable option. But we spent money doing a district plan change, getting resource consenting done. Um, and whilst doing that in parallel, we did uh, drill holes, uh, we did modeling of what was there, and then we built the strategy around what does the future of the quarry actually look like? Will it continue to be a quarry? Will it become a resource recovery center? Um, what do we actually want to do with that site? Um, long and short of it is we hedged our bets and, you know, whether it was luck or really good planning, um, it ends up that it will be a quarry and it ends up that there is really good rock and it ends up that there is um, uh, a need for the quarry in the Wellington region, a strong need for the quarry in the Wellington region. Um, and so taking that risk of spending money doing a district plan change, all those years trying to get a district plan change across the line, getting resource consenting done and all the work required to get the resource consent, was a risk of time and money gone if it ended up that there wasn't good rock in, in the southern end, if it ended up that actually there is no need for a quarry in, in the Wellington region or another quarry in the Wellington region, and we ended up doing something different with the site, we would have ended up spending time and money on stuff that wasn't really required. Um, so I think one of the biggest things associated with planning for uncertainty is risk and, and having the mandate and the ability to take risk. 
Um, and I think that's, that's kind of the, the, the big barrier that I see um, around our risk-averse nature means that um, it is quite difficult to take on risk, particularly like in our environment where, where you're working with public funds. Um, it, it's, it's not really good practice to be taking risk. Um, the Kiwi Point example was, uh, was probably a little skewed in the fact that we could kind of see the future. Um, there, there was not as much uncertainty with, with taking that risk as, as there might be with some other projects. But I think, um, yeah, in my opinion, planning for uncertainty kind of requires yeah, taking risk. Absolutely. And I think the way you describe it is true and that you need the license from decision makers or from the public or whoever to spend money now that may not end up being worthwhile. That's kind of the nature of thinking about the future in an uncertain way. In the paper that we looked at, we were looking at the context of buying land for a project, even if there's kind of only a 50-50 shot of the project going ahead. And, and in retrospect, that can make a lot of sense if, oh, if you hadn't bought the site in advance, then the project could never go ahead. But if you're living in the counterfactual of, oh, uh, this infrastructure provider spent a whole lot of money buying this land and took it away from people and it was all for nothing, that could make them actually look quite quite bad in, in the long run as well. So it's definitely is um, a matter of risk and bravery and um, I guess thinking a bit intentionally about what are all those future scenarios that could happen and what's the path I can take now that's maybe minimizing the regret because there's always some chance of regret. And, and I think one of the things that, that we looked at from, uh, from the Kiwi Point example was what does that worst case scenario look like? If we go and spend this time and money and it ends up we don't actually intend on putting a quarry or continuing to quarry at that site, what, is, what does that worst case look like? How much would we have spent? How much time would we have spent on it? Um, and is it something that we would be able to justify? Um, and can we reduce that? So the money that we're spending on this, how, how best can we reduce that so that we're not taking too much risk? And we can, we can show that, hey, we, we did this as cheaply as we could. Um, and, and I think it's, it's identifying what that worst case scenario is and trying to put a few mitigations around that or even just some remediations to try and minimize that as much as possible. I can imagine the worst case scenario on the other side being even worse though, where if there was no quarry or not enough, a big enough quarry to serve Wellington region, the cost of that I could see being quite substantial for, or even just an inability to deliver the projects that were trying to be delivered. Eh? Yeah, I mean, the the, the aggregate market is huge in Wellington at the moment. Um, we, we definitely wouldn't be able to supply the market without Kiwi Point in existence. Um, we would actually, but the cost would be ginormous because we would, so we did a little bit of analysis here, is in order to be able to supply the local market with the type of aggregate that comes out of Kiwi Point, it would require 200 truck movements a day uh, from the Rangatiki to come in. Um, so that, you, you think about the carbon emission cost, you think about the actual cost of aggregate to bring it in um, from up north, it, it would just push infrastructure projects um, to the point where some projects may just not get the green light because they would be too expensive to construct. That's really interesting and I think thinking about those wider impacts are really important as well. Well, I think I'm getting to the end of my list of questions. Do you have any closing comments or anything else that you think you might might be interesting to think about in this area? Um, 
I think that I'm, I'm a big believer in looking back to look forward. Um, and I think when, when, when we look back um, across even just Wellington's history, right, we can, we can look at um, decisions that were made in the past and we can question why they make that decision, you know, um, why they build the port where they built the port, why they, um, why they build those properties or those, those buildings where they built those buildings. Um, and I think whenever you're, you're in infrastructure, you're always going to face uncertainty. And people have, unfaced, have faced it in the past and people will continue to face it in the future. And we're just a moment in time trying to predict what's going to happen. Um, and all we can do is our best. Um, and, and at the end of the day, future generations will look back and say they either did a decent job or they did a terrible job. Um, our, our purpose is to try and make sure that we're, we're doing the best possible uh, decision-making around the future that we can with the information that we've got. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in today. I think that idea of thinking about it as an intergenerational issue is really important. So thanks so much. Thanks, Nidhi. Thanks for listening. Find out more about the work Tiwaihanga is doing to transform infrastructure in Aotearoa at tiwaihanga.govt.nz.